our Father in heaven, with everything that that means. You're the Lord of our lives. You're the shepherd of our souls. We love you with all of our hearts. Father, we're in an open structure here. We can feel the beautiful, soft, clean, refreshing breeze that you've sent. We want to feel the refreshing breeze from your Holy Spirit, that divine wind coming in, moving upon us in a mysterious and mighty way. There are no doors on this structure anyone can get in, but we believe that with the power of your angels, you can shut out evil influences as you barred the entrance to the Garden of Eden. So please station your cherubim with flaming swords at the entrances to this place. Shut us in with you, away from distractions, purify our minds to get this big picture, this grand message that you have for us just before your second coming. We believe you're coming very soon. We can see things around us. And we can see, Lord, that we, your people, have been and are in a Laodicean condition. We confess our lack of zeal for you, our lack of wanting to make preparation for your coming, proclamation of your message of love, the burning desire, the most important things in our lives. We have let other things get in the way, and in that we have done wrong. Forgive us. Help us now to have our thinking rearranged by your word. Help me not to get in the way. May this message come straight from you to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to look at the big picture, very big picture. We're going to start with Leviticus, and we're going to end up in Revelation. All right? I've never attempted to do this. I'll have to confess to you this morning. But I think you're going to see some things come together that you've never seen fit together before. You're going to see a unity in the end-time message that you've never seen before. And I think it's going to strangely stir your hearts as it has stirred mine. So here we go. Got your seatbelts on? All right. <laughs> All electronic devices turned off? Um, all right, we're going on a flight. All right, here we go. The question we're going to look at is, what does the sanctuary teach the end-time people of God about preparation for the imminent second coming of Christ? All right, imminent. We're not trying to set a date, are we? Somebody tried to do that recently. Uh, they thought it was a secret rapture, and it turned out to be an unsecret rupture. We're not going to be trying to do that here uh, today, but we believe that the and is imminent, could come any time. If we set a date, that may be too far in the future. Ah, this thing is wonderful. Okay, judgment at the sanctuary on the Day of Atonement. Let's start there, in Leviticus. Judgment in the sanctuary on the Day of Atonement. There were two phases of atonement at the sanctuary. The two phases consisted of, during the year, people would bring their 
offerings to the sanctuary, like sin offerings, for example, and they would lean one hand on the head of the animal as an unspoken confession of sin. Or if it were a hidden kind of sin, they would orally confess to get it out in the open. And they would then take the life of the animal, the blood was put on the horns of the altar, and this was the way for the uh, debt of sin to be removed through pointing to Christ's sacrifice. On that basis, then, God could forgive his people. The, this was the way in which the people would bring their sins to God and leave it with him. Right? It wasn't their problem anymore. They were cleansed from that. But it was still left at the sanctuary. It was in his ballpark. We're going to talk about why that is. In what sense, when sin is forgiven, does God still have something to do with it that he has to deal with? All right? So we're going to uh, look at that. The sins came into the sanctuary during phase one, Leviticus 4, but then on the Day of Atonement once per year, Leviticus 16, these sins were removed from the sanctuary, along with ritual impurities. And this was like a house cleaning. When you sweep out a room, you start from the inside and you sweep out, right? And that's what happens. The, the priest goes into the Holy of Holies and begins there and progressively cleanses the sanctuary from the inside out. Now, throughout the year earlier, we see that if the whole community sinned in Leviticus 4, or if the high priest sinned, which of course involved the whole community because he represents them, then the blood is applied, first of all, uh, before the veil, which I'll have to, I can't explain to you fully right now why this is in front of the incense altar. You'll have to read what I've written on that. We can't do everything here. And then the blood goes, according to Leviticus 4, verses 7 and 8, uh, they, or rather verses 6 and 7 and 17 and 18, the blood goes on the horns of the incense altar. That means that the blood is moving, those applications of blood are moving towards the ark, representing the fact that the sin is moving into the sanctuary. And there are other indications that throughout the year during phase one, as the people were bringing their sins, leaving them with God, they were going into the sanctuary. On the Day of Atonement, they come out. What goes in must come out, just like what goes up must come down. All right? Got it? All right. Now, that's, that's a basic principle, but it's very important, and we're going to build on that. On the Day of Atonement also, when this was going on, the high priests alone could go in and, and be with God. The people could not see that happening. But just as when Queen Esther told the people of Susa, fast with me as I go in before the king, right? the people were to enter into and participate in the experience by doing two things. According to Leviticus 16, 29 to 31, they were to afflict themselves, that is, practice physical self-denial, fasting and, and other things, and they were to keep Sabbath. In this way, they were to not worry about anything earthly. No food, you don't worry about that. And you don't think about doing any work, you just focus, concentrate on God. In this way, they were to show loyalty to God on the Day of Atonement when the final second stage of atonement for their sins was being accomplished. God had already freed them from those sins. Right? They were gone from them. 
As it says, when we're forgiven, our sins are removed from the east, as far as the east is from the west. It's like they're cast into the depths of the sea. And Corey Ten Boom said, there's a big sign out there that says, no fishing allowed. So when God forgives us, he really forgives us. And there are those um, who attack us by saying that the judgment that we talk about, the second phase, the Day of Atonement phase, removes our assurance so that we have to be forgiven all over again. They don't understand the second phase of atonement, but you will by the time we're done here today. Okay, so it doesn't mean that we need to be forgiven all over again, but God is dealing with our sins. We're going to get to that. And this is a judgment between the loyal people who do those things, they show their loyalty to God at that time, and the disloyal who fail to do that. Leviticus 23, 29 to 30. So this is a real judgment among the nominal people of God, those who claim to have a connection with Him, within that group, between those who are loyal and those who are disloyal, just as in the camp of Israel you could find Caleb and Joshua, and you could also find Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, right? All within the nominal people of God. This wasn't judging the Amalekites and the Moabites and the Jebusites and the websites and you know, all those out, out there. It was, it was just the nominal people of God, the, the Israelites, who had claimed a connection with Him. So, people today who claim to be Christians, the reason why judgment, God's judgment has to deal with their cases is because they affect His reputation. What they do under His name tells the world and the universe something about Him. Just like what Colonel Oliver North did, you remember the Iran-Contra hearings? Said something about Ronald Reagan that he worked for, and there had to be a distancing. Ronald Reagan wanted to distance himself from what North did, see? And that involved some judicial kinds of things. So this is what God is uh, doing. The, okay, judgment has the purpose of showing that God is fair. This is an extremely important point. Uh, a judge, the job of a judge is not to forgive. Am I correct? That's not the job of a judge. The purpose of the judge is to condemn the guilty and to vindicate the innocent, right? To acquit the innocent. In fact, the judges of Israel are given those instructions in Deuteronomy 25. In 1 Kings 8.32, Solomon is praying to God and asking Him to do the same thing. However, what does God do? God does forgive. All right, let me ask you a simple question. This is not a confessional here today, like in some churches, but I'll just ask you a question. You don't have to give me any specifics. Uh, has anyone here ever sinned? Yeah, okay, now another second question. Has anyone here ever been forgiven? Praise the Lord. Ooh, but God, as our judge, a judge isn't supposed to forgive. What does that do to justice when you forgive the guilty? The judge needs to be justified in doing that, that that was a right and just thing to do. Do you get it? That is the problem that God deals with and why sins are left at the sanctuary. It's all about judicial responsibility of God as judge in forgiving the, uh, the people who have accepted him. Right? 
And of course, he condemns some among the nominal people of God. They say, oh, whoa, Lord, Lord, we called upon your name. You know, we belong to you. And he condemns them. He has to be shown to be just in dealing with these among his nominal people. Now, an illustration that works very well is 2 Samuel 14, verse 9. Here the woman of Tekoa has come before King David as judge. And she tells a made-up story, but it illustrates real-life dynamics of justice. And this woman comes to David and she says, I'm a widow, I had two sons, but one son killed the other. Now the relatives want to put to death the, the murderer uh, because he's supposed to die. And so help, if I lose that son, I'll have nobody to carry on the family name. And she didn't say nobody to feed me in my old age. So David had mercy, but he, he said, first of all, he said in verse 8, he said, go to your house and I'll give orders concerning you. He was concerned for his reputation as judge, because a judge isn't supposed to forgive a guilty person. But the woman says in, in 2 Samuel 14, verse 9, she says, O king, let the blame be on me and on my father's house, but let the king and his throne, which represents his administration, his government, right, be clean. That is clean from, from uh, culpability, from blame in forgiving a guilty person. So she's saying, yes, I recognize that a judge would be wrong in forgiving my son, but we will take that blame. Don't worry about it. So on that basis, David forgave the son. Now that illustrates what God deals with. But God has no woman of Tekoa to take his blame, does he? He takes it and pays for it in the death of his son. He bears it. In fact, when it says in Exodus 34, verse 7, it says that God, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, that's verse 6. Verse 7 says, Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That Hebrew word for forgiving is nasa. That wasn't with an Australian accent, by the way. That's the Hebrew word nasa. And that means to bear, to carry. He bears. When God forgives, he bears that sin. It's a load that we hand over to him. He has to bear it because he is the judge. He vindicates his justice through a judgment. This is the purpose of the judgment to vindicate that God is just when he forgives truly guilty people. All right, that's the purpose of the judgment. It's not to wipe away our assurance so that we start all over again and we have to be forgiven again. No, we've been forgiven. But it's to complete the process because, let me give you an example. If I went and took my Toyota Corolla out on the highway out here and I was doing 120 miles an hour in a 55 zone and I got stopped, taken to the judge. Suppose the judge, I don't think they'd do this in the state of Ohio, I know they wouldn't where I live. Uh, Suppose the judge said, well, I know that you sincerely promised never to do this again and so therefore I'm going to forgive you and pay your fine probably 250 bucks, I don't know. Uh, I'm going to pay your fine. That's never going to happen, okay, but that's an illustration. Okay, what's going to happen then when that judge is up for re-election? Perhaps you could, you could imagine that the uh, one challenging the incumbent would look up in the public records to see if they could find something about their record that that judge has done something they could say is wrong. 
And there they find that that judge forgave guilty Roy Gain for doing 120 in a 55 zone. This is a real whimsical example, okay? And so, so he finds that and he puts in the newspaper, that judge is soft on crime. See? So now, you see, the judge who forgave has got a problem. But if the judge who forgave is then vindicated in what he did to me on my behalf, then I receive benefit too, don't I? Because it's shown that my forgiveness was in fact just. See how that works? All right, and there is a higher court in the universe. Not that God is subject to the power of anybody, but he wants to show the universe of created beings who are intelligent with free choice that they can trust him. And that's a tall order. We mentioned yesterday, that's like a, a politician trying to get everyone in their hometown to love them, except it goes to the whole universe. That's a pretty tall order. How do you do that? You've got to show that you're fair. All right, the third point is the judgment shows the faith of God's people. Christ's sacrifice justifies God when he justifies or forgives those who have faith, Romans 3.26. Now you can say, if God is already justified at the cross by what Jesus did, and that makes God just when he justifies those who believe, then why does God need any kind of an end-time judgment to vindicate his justice? You get the point? But the answer is, look at the end of the verse, Romans 3.26, justifies one who has faith in Jesus. Who's that? Who has faith in Jesus? Yes, he's just when he justifies one who has faith in Jesus, but one who departs from that faith, he's not just when he justifies such a person anymore, is he? All right. Colossians 1, 21 to 23, talks about the fact that God's people were in all kinds of conditions, but then, such were some of you, but then, as long as you hold firm to the faith, if you hold fast to the faith, then you'll be carried through. There's an if there. See? It's not just having faith at one time. It's maintaining that, not throwing away that trillion-dollar check of forgiveness that God has given to us. All right, so there's a need for finding out who is still with Jesus? Who continues to have faith or loyalty? Faith and loyalty go together, don't they? All right? Loyalty to God, faith in Him. Caleb in the Old Testament, Abraham, the people of faith were the ones who had loyalty. They also had courage, too, right? Now, I'm going to tell you something that may sound rather radical. Almost everybody I know of, including myself, I think everybody I knew of, thought that the purpose of the judgment was something that it is not. And that is, people think the purpose of the judgment is to find out who has sinned. Right? Isn't that what people think? They think that who has sinned. And there's a wonderful picture that I could have showed you in a PowerPoint, but it wouldn't show up real well here. Um, in Adventist books, showing a man dressed in a black suit, except he has a white shirt, and he's standing... I guess he has a white shirt, but you can't see his shirt. And he's standing like this in front of the law of God. And his life is being measured against the law of God. And you get the impression that the purpose of the judgment is to find out how he has sinned. 
and you get the idea that the only way you'll survive in that situation is if you haven't sinned. Or if you've been forgiven from all your sins. Okay, that's fine. But look, folks, come on, let's be reasonable. Does God need a judgment to find out if we have sinned? How many people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? Romans 3.23. He already knows that. Everybody knows that. It's stated in the Bible. That couldn't possibly be the purpose of the judgment. Wow. Now we see that the purpose of the judgment is to answer the question, who continues to have faith? Does that put a little bit of a different complexion on the judgment? I think so. I think it's a lot more positive. It's to find out who still hangs on to Jesus. Jesus said to the woman taken in adultery, John 8, verse 11, Neither do I condemn you. You're forgiven. Your previous life is flushed. Okay? Now, go and don't do that again. All right? She was accountable then for holding on to the forgiveness that she had received and living in accordance with that forgiveness with the transformation that God gives with it, as Ellen White says in Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, page 114, God's forgiveness is not merely a judicial act by which he frees us from condemnation. God's forgiveness is the outflow of transforming love, is the outflow of redeeming love that transforms the heart. The outflow of redeeming love that transforms the heart. David had the true conception of forgiveness. This is Ella White. When he prayed, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Now, Ellen White didn't know Hebrew, but it so happens that the words create and the word forgive, the word bara, the word salah in Hebrew, those two words have nobody as their subject performing them except for God. There's a unique word for forgiving, which only God can do. Because God forgives in a unique way. And how does he do that? By creating a clean heart, which we cannot do. We can forgive each other, but we can't create in each other a clean heart. God does that uniquely. When God does that, then we need to hang on to that, neither do I condemn you. Now, go and sin no more. We're not accountable for the part that's flushed, that's gone. But we're accountable now for the converted life, which is empowered by God through that transforming forgiveness. That's what comes up into the judgment, right? Unless we decide to throw it away. Why would God do that to us? He allows us free choice. I can change my mind. If I don't want to live with him for eternity, then he says, okay, you don't have to do that. That would be hell for you to live with me anyway. And he gives me free choice. All right, he res God respects our free choice. That's incredible. You know, sin crouches at the door. Genesis 4, verse 7. Jesus stands at the door and knocks. And if anyone will open the door, he will come in. Isn't that amazing? He respects our free choice. So the question is, who has faith? If that's true, then, and again, those who attack us on this say, aha, but you Adventists believe that you're judged according to your works, therefore you believe that you are saved by your works. Well, folks, look, we didn't make up this idea by ourselves. The idea that we're judged according to our works happens to be in the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
Here it is in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes 12, 14. We're judged by our works. Every secret thing and so on will come into judgment. And also it's in the New Testament. Paul affirms that. I didn't have time to put all the references. That's a biblical idea. Now, how do we explain that? We also find, by the way, in Daniel 7, verse 10, that uh, the judgment is set and the books are opened at the time of the end time judgment. What are those books all about? Records of what? Records of human works, right? That's what the books are all about, which can include their decisions in regard to God. Those are works, right? Transactions that we have, relational transactions. But why is it that we're judged by our works? Let me ask you a question. Can created beings made by God read thoughts? No. Okay. What did Jesus demonstrate when he read thoughts like those of Simon at Simon's feast? And Simon asked a question in his mind, and Jesus answered it. What did Jesus demonstrate? That he's God. Because only God can read thoughts. Therefore, by the way, I'm so glad Satan can't read our thoughts, aren't you? There's a place of quiet rest near to the heart of God. And between these two ears in this cranium, Satan doesn't know what's going on. I can pray silently to God and commune with him. Satan doesn't know what on earth. He can't encrypt the code or, or, or de-encrypt the code. That's, in other words, prayers aren't necessarily on a party line. Yes, if I speak them, that's true, and, and it's fine to speak them. But he's a terrific student of human behavior. He can see your eyes dilate. He can see you sweat. He can see what you're looking at. So be careful. But back to God. Does God need a judgment to know our thoughts of faith? No. He already knows everything, and he can read thoughts. So why would there be a judgment of works? Because the judgment isn't for God's information. It's not an investigative judgment in that sense. God doing research. You know, I do a lot of research, and I go to the library, or I send my research assistant, or I go to the internet, or to my Accordance Bible software, and I do research to find out new information. God doesn't have to do that. The purpose of the judgment here in Daniel 7.10 is, notice, God is not there alone. He's surrounded by myriads, thousands upon 10,000, millions of created beings, angels. What are they doing there when the books are open? This is called complete disclosure on the part of God. It's the demonstrative judgment, like no human government would ever think of doing. We live in a free country, but there's a lot of classified stuff in the Pentagon and in the White House and those kind of places. God opens up everything, all the books. Look and see what these people have done, how I have related to that, and see if I am just and merciful, meaning that I am truly the God of love that I claim to be. See? That's the purpose of the judgment. I would call it the demonstrative judgment from God's standpoint. Yes, it's investigative from the standpoint of his creatures looking into that, but now why is it a judgment of works? We know that because if, if it's the jury, which is all the created beings, they can't read thoughts of faith. God has to give them evidence that they can see. Can you see this? Artifact that I have here, exhibit number one. All right. Can you see it? 
You can't see a thing, can you? I have to show you evidence that you can witness. And that's what God does. And it's valid because faith without works is dead. You can't separate faith from works. Works are the symptoms of faith. When God said to Abraham, Lech lecha, get going. And Abraham says to, um, to Sarah, well, honey, we're moving. And they start loading up uh, all their stuff into baskets and putting them on the donkeys and so on. Is that faith or is that works? Faith and works. It's both. You can't separate them. You get the point, all right? So that's the reason why there's a judgment of works. Now let's go to uh, the three angels' messages. The judgment is presented at the end time as gospel. Good news. Revelation 14, 6 and 7. The angel, which is, angel, by the way, means messenger. And who is the messenger proclaiming this message? God's people. That's us. We are that angel. All right? And in the midst of heaven, with mighty power, proclaiming that um, the hour of his judgment has come, the end time judgment. And is that good news? That's what it says. It's good news. What that means is that Jesus is coming soon. Enough is enough. He's going to judge oppression, judge the oppressors. He's going to take us home. Judgment is a wonderful thing if you're being oppressed, right? If your judge is just and honest and is willing to help you, right? And we know that God is. In fact, he's paid the price of our lives. He wants to help us. We have nothing to fear in the judgment. He's, he's died for us. Jesus is our defense attorney. He's our witness, and he even substitutes for us in our stead. We can't go wrong. What do we have to be afraid in the judgment? The purpose is to deliver us from oppression. As King David said in the book of Psalms repeatedly, judge me, O God. Right? And the woman of Tekoa, wanting judgment, said in 2 Samuel 14, help, O king, meaning judge me, save me here in this situation. It's good news. We come down to the third angel's message, Revelation 14, verse 12, and this is incredibly profound. It says, here are they that keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the faith of Jesus. Two things here. Commandments of God, which represent what? What did Jesus say that the commandments are based on? Matthew 22, 37 to 40. Love. So love. Relational. The whole gospel is relational. All right? Commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now, scholars have discussed this a lot. I've heard a discussion recently. And some scholars believe that uh, faith of Jesus is referring to the faith that Jesus had. And we hold fast to the faith that Jesus had. And that's, that's very plausible. Of course, it's true that we have faith in that faith that Jesus had, that trust. And we accept his experience of faith by faith. So you can't really separate those things. But, but his faith was based upon love, wasn't it? For God so, what? Loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And the faith of Jesus was to believe that he could come through that and save us. So here we have two aspects of love. Commandments, faith of Jesus. In other words, here is the standard of love, and here is the means of love and the salvation from unlove through 
Jesus. That is the third angel's message. And Ellen White called us, Seventh-day Adventists, the people of the third angel's message because that is the end-time message. And in 1888 at Minneapolis at the General Conference, there was a big discussion about this. And you see, Adventists had really emphasized the commandments of God, but they sort of had neglected the faith of Jesus. And so what we need is both of these together working dynamically in harmony. It's really only when you grasp the faith of Jesus that you can have that love that puts you in harmony with his commandments, you see? It's all dynamic, it's one whole. This is the end, the end time message. If I were to point to one verse that would, we would say is the mission statement and marching orders of the Seventh-day Adventist movement, not just denomination, not just hierarchy, but movement, it's Revelation 14, verse 12. That's it. And, and that's, I didn't make up that idea. I mean, that's what Ellen White thought. This, these two things were equivalent to showing, I guess I'm jumping ahead here a little bit. Whoops. Huh. Let me get that. There. These two things, commandments of God, faith in Jesus, are equivalent to the two things that the Israelites were to do on the Day of Atonement, which were, Leviticus 16, 29, to humble yourselves through physical self-denial and to keep Sabbath. And there is a connection here because Jesus, according to Philippians 2, verse 8, humbled himself when he lowered himself, thinking it not uh, a problem to... to to lower himself from equality with God. He came down, 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 even to death on a cross. He humbled himself, Philippians 2, verse 8, as we are to humble ourselves at the end of time. Faith of Jesus, the faith that he had, see? The Sabbath, they were to keep Sabbath on the Day of Atonement, all right? The Sabbath is a microcosm, a representative, uh, the whole thing in miniature, of the whole Ten Commandments, isn't it? for two reasons. One, the Sabbath gives the authority behind the whole Ten Commandments. And secondly, because Sabbath is a sign that God sanctifies his people. Exodus 31, 13. What is sanctification? What did we say yesterday? Sanctification is growth in what? Love. 1 Thessalonians 3, 12, and 13. 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 12 and 13. Faith, love, growth in love, is the same as growth in holiness. So if Sabbath is a sign of sanctification, it is a sign of growth in love. And what is love? God's character and his law. You see how all these things are intertwined. It's unbelievable. All right. So um, what we are to do, if we ask ourselves, on their day of atonement, which was a day of judgment, because on that day, if they didn't show loyalty, they were to be cut off or destroyed. But if they did show loyalty, they were to be vindicated. It was a true day of judgment, that day of atonement. And they had those two things to do, to show loyalty to God. What is our equivalent that we do at the end time day of atonement judgment? Here are the equivalent two things. Revelation 14, verse 12, third angel's message. Keep the commandments of God, Hold fast to the faith of Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, number, whoops, did I miss one little point there? Whoop. Did I miss one point there? 
Loyalty, yes. We show our loyalty, as the Israelites did, through our faith and through our love. Loyalty, folks, is the bottom line. We often think that perfection is the bottom line. That is the result of our loyalty. Because if we are loyal to God, he is going to take care of the perfection. We're going to get to that a little bit more. Perfection is maturity, it's growth, it's God that gives that. The part we're responsible for is making the choice of being loyal and following him. Okay? The Elijah message. Whoa. Did you know that the three angels' message, messages, particularly the third, has the same message as the Elijah message? Okay, here it is. Remember the law. What's the law based on? Love. Commandments of God. Relational reconciliation, turning the hearts of the fathers to the children, the children to the fathers. That's love, right? Okay? So it's the same message in the Elijah message. The law, which is love, and relational reconciliation, which is love, in preparation for Christ's second coming. Now, it's an amazing thing at the end of the Old Testament. These are the last three verses of the Old Testament. Not in Hebrew. Hebrew ends with Second Chronicles. But in English, based upon earlier versions like the Septuagint, it's um, Malachi. Last three verses. And we expect when it says, before the great and terrible day of the Lord, I will send Elijah, and he will rain down fire by miraculous power on Mount Carmel and do great things and maybe wipe out God's enemies and so on. That's what we expect, right? And even as Adventists, it's a little bit of an anticlimax. <laughs> it's a little bit of a disappointment. All he's going to do is just turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the children to the fathers. That's so undramatic. My friends, this is the still small voice message. This is the climax. The climax is not the fire on Mount Carmel. It's not the earthquake and the wind and all of that. The climax is the still small voice of the Spirit putting love in hearts where love didn't exist before. Wow. Romans 5, verse 5. The Holy Spirit pours love into our hearts. And I've tested that promise. Years ago, there was someone I needed to love, and I'd lost my love for that person. And I looked around in the ventricles, in the atria of my heart, metaphorically speaking, I was looking for a molecule of love, and I couldn't find it. And I couldn't get it by myself, and I realized that, and I felt desperate. So I prayed to God, God, pour love into my heart by your miraculous power. I knew it was going to be a creative power, like when God said, let there be light. And he did. He poured love into my heart, and that love lived and endured, and my life was restored and went on. Wow. One of my seminary students heard me tell that story in a sanctuary class, and she came to me afterwards, and she said, I'm having trouble loving someone right now. I said, I'll pray for you. So I prayed for her that week. She prayed. She came back the next week, and she said, it's working. I said, of course. What did you expect? <laughs> it's not conditional. God wants nothing more than to pour love into our hearts. That's what he wants to do. Okay, and this is the Elijah message. This is the most important message for our time. If we as Adventists would focus on this message, relational reconciliation, unity, 
between family. Family is so important. Between family members, between generations. Instead of tearing each other apart and you know, worshiping, instead of the house of God being a great place of worship, we're all worshiping in our little pup tents, right? Because our worship styles don't really mesh. Anyway, that's something practical to work on. Uh, but, but we have a work to do. If we can model relational reconciliation to the world, then this is going to go further in proclaiming the gospel than so many of our words. I love what Francis of Assisi said. He said to his disciples, he said, preach the word of God at all times. Use words when you have to. All right. The latter reign of the Spirit, folks, is the same message, believe it or not. The early and latter reign, the early reign fulfilled at Pentecost, the power of unifying love is what we saw in Acts 2. You know, a lot of times we overlook that fact. Where was the power of Pentecost? In what did it reside? Yes, we see the unity, and they pray, and then the power comes, great. Unity is the prerequisite, that is, it's what we, we need to do before we get the power. That's not quite right. Folks, the power is the unity. It's God, God anoints this unity, like in Psalm 133. I, I, I think of it in Hebrew. Do you know that song? You know that one? I have a terrible voice, but um, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. And the next verses say, we never sing that, it's like the oil on the head of Aaron, dripping down on his beard, and we think, oh, unity's pretty messy. But it's the consecration, anointing oil. And the message of the psalm is, unity is holy. See? No matter where we are, if we have that unity, that unity is holy, and it testifies that God is there. Holiness is love, because God is love. And so when we have this um, power of unifying love. Jesus talked about it, uh, John 17, 20 to 23. You know, we've got to read that word for word. It's too profound. Um, John 17, look it up, verses 20 to 23. Amazing, amazing words Jesus said. And if we would really take this to heart, I think it would transform our witness. Jesus said, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. That's us, right? Verse 21 of John 17, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Through the unity, the world believes, because the world has never seen that kind of unity. The next verse, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Wow, that's amazing. That is the power of the latter rain does something again as happened at Pentecost, but this time it's going to even be greater. The gospel was taken to every land in that day. It's going to be taken to every land in our day. We wonder how it'll be done, but it's going to happen. Now we have the internet. They didn't have that, right? The source of this love is the Holy Spirit. Hope doesn't disappoint because God's Spirit is poured, or rather God's love is poured into our hearts through the Spirit. That's Romans 5, verse 5. If you claim that promise every day, first thing when you wake up, before you even look in the mirror, 
certainly before you speak to anyone, claim that promise. Your life will be transformed by the lives of those around you. Because, my friends, that is the power of the latter rain. The power has been there waiting for us all along. We just need to accept it, what God has for us there. Get together and as a group, and this is a group experience, it's not just an individual experience, we need to get together. And if we want it badly enough that we focus on God, it's not our desire that is a work that is meritorious, no, it's that if that becomes our overwhelming priority, that we want to go home and be with him, we want his work to be finished, and we love other people in a miraculous way that breaks down barriers, that's not afraid of ridicule, not afraid of being weird, breaks down boxes, not... Those early disciples, that's what the power was. They loved people who spat on them and stoned them and crucified them upside down and beheaded them. They loved them anyway. That was the power. Folks, that's not natural. That is miraculous power, and that is the power of the latter rain. It's not gigantic choirs and orchestras and stained glass windows and organs and mega decibels and, 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 and amazingly eloquent preachers. None of that is the power of the latter rain. The power is when people see, whoa, these people are different. What's happened? They're being with Jesus. And then the Lord can take us. We won't be afraid to go out on the streets to proclaim, tell everyone, brag about God. You know, we brag about everything else, don't we? Brag about our cars, our computers, our football teams, our basketball teams. Why don't try bragging about God who gave it all? That's the greatest witness. Whoa, have you heard about my God? He is so amazing. You know what he's done for me? You get the point. All right. All right, victory over sin. We're going to wrap it up here. Victory over sin. This is a big issue. We're still saved by grace through faith. We're always saved by grace through faith, never by works, lest anyone should boast. For the end time, last generation, people of God, there is not a different way of salvation. We're not saved by being perfect. Okay? Where does perfection come in? God has always been able to keep us from sinning. This was a promise in Jude 24 for people in New Testament times. He's always been able to keep us from sinning. Do you believe that he can keep us from sinning? Amen. A lot of people don't. A lot of people think, it's like breathing, you know, I can't stop sinning. Jesus came to demonstrate that to be human doesn't mean you have to sin. Right? We weren't made that way. God perfects his people's character. He perfects his people's character. He is the one who does it. Notice in Ephesians 5, who is the one who washes his people with the washing of water with the word, so that they are without spot or blemish or any such thing? Who's the one who does it? Jesus, who loved himself and gave himself for the bride, which is the church. Who is it? Revelation 19, 7 and 8. It says, the, um, the white linen representing the righteous deeds of the saints is given to them. It is a gift. All of our works are only ever part of receiving the gift. So our part is to be loyal to God to receive the gift, not to whip it up on our own. God vindicates himself through us. Now, there's been a long-standing idea that really had its most eloquent articulation in the second-to-last chapter of M. L. Andreessen's book on the sanctuary. 
And this idea is that we vindicate God in the end by our perfect lives demonstrating that he is right when he says that his law can be kept by human beings. You've heard that before. I'm uncomfortable with that. We vindicate God. No, no. God vindicates himself by what he does in and for and through us. Right? Let's let the focus be on him. Not that we are performing a last stage of atonement for the people of God by our works, but rather that we loyally follow him and he does what he wants to do in and for us. And he vindicates himself. Truly his law can be kept. Our role is to follow Christ. Now you see, if I look at my glasses, I can see that they're a little bit not totally clean. If I look at my shoes or the rest of me, if we look at ourselves, we get discouraged. Peter did fine when he was, huh, when he was looking at Christ, but as soon as he focused on himself, he looked at the wind and the waves, he started to sink. It's like when you're water skiing. You know, you got to hold on to the rope. You can't let go of the rope. So if our role is to follow Christ, he will lead us, weak as we are, to where he wants to take us. And look, if we're weak, we won't struggle with him. We'll give up and let him take us through. It doesn't mean that we don't have to cooperate and that that's not hard work and blood, toil, tears, and sweat. It's all part of receiving the gift, and he carries us through. We have the same standard, God said to Abraham in Genesis 7, 17, verse 1, walk before me and be blameless. That's pretty comprehensive, isn't it? No different standard, no higher standard for the end-time people of God. But there's a new challenge, that uh, beast power in Revelation 13. And there's victory as a group. God will never have such a cohesive group experiencing this. There have been individuals in the past, Abraham and so on, uh, Daniel, but he's going to have a whole group of people like this. When people have settled into their choices, Christ will no longer need to mediate for sins. Christ doesn't walk off the job leaving people to perish. When I was uh, doing construction, working on a house, I was, I was let go. I wasn't fired. I was let go when the job was done. Right? When Christ's job is done and people have settled into their choices, he doesn't need to mediate for sins anymore of his people because they're just not doing that. The Holy Spirit will have helped them to outgrow committing acts of sin. All right? Now notice, who decides whether they're saved or lost? Who decides whether you're saved or lost? You do. It's your choice. God respects your choice. Did God force anyone to get on the ark or off the ark in the days of Noah? No. He allowed them to make their choice. He waited for a whole week, and then he shut the door. And that's what happens in the end. All right. We will walk by faith in God's power, not by sight, but Christ will never leave us. I am with you always. Ellen White says in The Great Controversy, something that has made Adventists, including myself, tremble. She says that after the close of probation, we will stand before a holy God without a mediator. All right? We'll be walking by faith without a sight. Uh, rather than by sight, as Jesus on the cross was going by faith in God's word. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's referring to the whole psalm, which ends in victory. He was going by God's word alone, and we will be going by God's word alone because all the powers of hell and earth are arrayed against us. Okay? 
and we won't see any way out, but we will know that Christ is with us. Behold, I am with you always. He that has the Son has life, 1 John 5, verse 12. That is our assurance. When Jesus stops mediating for sins, he doesn't stop mediating our prayers. We have to have his, his merits to mediate our prayers, don't we? According to Revelation 8. It just, doesn't, it just means that we're no longer committing acts of sin. It doesn't mean that we are perfect in our flesh so, so that we don't have propensities to sin. We have those things until our bodies are glorified. We're made immortal. Right? But he helps us overcome our bodily impulses right? through our character. He will never leave us. In fact, Christ was... Whoops. Christ was... Whoops. All right. I have to... Can we, can we get back into the, um, back there? Can we just go to the end of this, um, and then I'll pull it, pull it in. I think it flipped me out of the presentation. Let me ask you a question. Where was Jesus during the time of Jacob's trouble? Where was Jesus in the time of Jacob's trouble? He was wrestling with a divine being who is the one whose goings forth are from of old. Thanks. And we'll, we can move it to there. Who is the one whose goings forth are from of old? Jesus. Jacob was wrestling with Jesus. Christ was in his arms as close as he could get. Whoa. So when we hear that, that we will stand before a holy God without a mediator, all it means is that he has prepared us for this. He is sustaining us. We're not standing in our own strength. We're standing with Jesus. The Holy Spirit is with us more than ever, even though we may not realize that the Holy Spirit has been withdrawn from the rest of the earth and put on us. We will not be going through this alone. We do not have to be afraid because we can just loyally follow him and know that he will carry us through. Praise the Lord. Now look, I want to end with this, and I know that it's time for me to quit um, that's just where, the, where to get some more information on this because we've just given the big overpicture. I just want to leave with you this, this idea. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now she's been divinized and all those things, but you know, she, if we strip away all the unbiblical stuff, we get a teenage girl. Now she may have been 15, we don't know. She, a teenage girl, they married young in those, those days. And here she's approached by the angel Gabriel, says, you're going to have a baby. She could have said, whoa, I better see my doctor to see if that can happen. But she didn't. And the angel said, with God, all things are possible. All things are possible. It doesn't matter what your struggle is, what your sin, even if the experts, the scientists, the psychologists tell you that your kind of sin is not possible to overcome. And they say that about some kinds of sins. You know what I'm talking about. Even if they say that. With God, all things are possible. God can keep you from falling, no matter what your sin. Yes, it may be really hard. You can't do it in your own strength. That's a given. But he can take you through. And what did Mary say to that angel Gabriel? She said, let it be to me according to your word. In other words, the Holy Spirit was going to overshadow her and implant Christ in her womb. Let it be to me according to your word. She said yes to God. Go ahead and do that. If we just say yes to God, go ahead and implant Jesus in our minds, spiritually, 
through your spirit, which is what he wants to do, Christ living in us, Galatians 2, verse 20. And if we say, let it be to me according to your word, your promise, what you want to do, O God, he will surely do that. You know what she was saying when she said that? She was saying, yes. That's all she was saying. Yes. I accept. I make that choice. Now, folks, if we just say yes to God, and we go on saying yes to God with everything behind it that that means, we're going to get there. He's going to take us through. And it's going to be soon. It's going to be real soon, I believe that. I want to hear you say yes. Come on. Yes. Wow, we can do better than that. Come on. Yes. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, you've given us such a rich message. But thank you that it's so simple. It's so unified. And what you want us to say is yes to you and to keep following. Accept your gift wherever that leads. It's going to lead into the, into the way of, of service, sometimes through the valley of the shadow of dark, dark uh, experiences, through pain, suffering, sickness, maybe all of that. But none of it really matters because when we get to heaven, we're going to say heaven is cheap enough. Our short time here is nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory. Uh, we know that when we get there, Lord, we're not going to stop all of our growing in love, our moral growth. We're going to grow in love for an eternity. When you get us to the point that we're not committing acts of sin, that's only the beginning of moral growth. Just like running a business, when you get out of debt and you're at zero and you start to be in the black and not in the red, then that's just the beginning of growth. Lord, take us through. Keep us from falling. Do a mighty work through us. May our lives touch others and give us that unity that testifies to your presence so that the world may know that you may come and take us home. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.